The story is told of a farmer who uh, entered into an attorney's office wanting to file for a divorce. The attorney asked, may I help you? And the farmer said, yeah, I want to get one of those divorces. The attorney says, well, do you have any grounds? The farmer said, yeah, I got about 140 acres. The attorney said, no, you don't understand. Do you have a case? The farmer said, no, sir, I don't have a case, but I got a John Deere. The attorney said, no, you don't understand. I mean, do you have a grudge? The farmer said, yes, sir, I got a grudge. That's where I park my John Deere. The attorney said, no, sir, I mean, do you have a suit? He said, yes, sir, I got a suit. I wear it every Sunday to church. The attorney, by this point, is exasperated. He says, well, sir, does your wife beat you up or something? He said, no, sir, we both get up around 4.30 a.m. Finally, the attorney said in desperation, okay, let me put it this way. Why do you want a divorce? The farmer said, well, I can never have a meaningful conversation with her. (laughs) You know, as I heard that story and continued and watched and listened to the ongoing battle for the White House, I was reminded of the importance of accurate and reliable communication of the ability to convey a thought through verbal expression. Throughout the past 33 days, we have heard repeatedly the importance of discerning the will of the voters, and hopefully we've also learned the danger of introducing subjective standards in lieu of those that are objective, those that are established before and for a time of crisis. And I think it's important in light of what we're going to be talking today to realize, fortunately for all of mankind, God has chosen to convey his thoughts, his character, and his will through the written word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to try to discern. We don't have to pass it around and say, What do you think this verse means? What does this verse mean to you? Let's get one thing clear. The verse may mean different things to different people for the purpose of application only. But the verse means what it means in the context in which it was written. God is not ambiguous in his thoughts. He is not ambiguous in in conveying his will in a way that we can readily discern what it is that he's saying to all of us as humanity. It's important to realize that because we need a standard that is objective and God understands that because he knows the subjective nature of human beings. He knows that we need an objective standard by which we measure our performance against the standard that's laid out before that, that God has laid out for all of us. We have learned that throughout our study of the book of Romans that God's standard is very simple. His standard is that all mankind have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin by simple definition is, is that God has a standard laid out and man doesn't meet that standard. If the standard is go 65 and man's going 80 or going whatever it is, we fall short of that. If God says don't lie and we lie, we are guilty as charged by God. The objective standard is in place by which we're to measure our behavior. That's why God comes conclusively to this this point all have sinned and fall short of the glory and the standard of God 
Every one of us, there's none of us that are righteous, no, not one. And it's important that we continue to drum that home or reinforce that because we live in a world today of subjectivity, great subjectivity, where we compare ourselves to one another. And the danger with that is, is that it doesn't go back to the only standard that matters. If we see this, what's going on in our country today, you put 50 people in a room and the subjective standard is going to be whatever your intention or will is, whatever your outcome you want it to be, that's what you're going to make sure turns out. And the danger with all of that is that there's no objectivity. And that's exactly the argument that we see before us. And it's important to take something that's current so that we can understand the reality of what's being taught to us in the Word of God. The subjectivity of man will never change the objective standards of God. It doesn't matter how many of us get together and vote that we think now something's right. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong yesterday, today, and forever, because the Word of God never changes, because God Himself doesn't change. And that's wonderful. You know, it's a wonderful truth to know that because of that, he's trustworthy and he's reliable. What he tells us yesterday is the same he'll tell us today, is the same that he'll tell us tomorrow. And it's wonderful to live in light of the uh, consistency of a standard that never changes and a God who never changes. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at to a certain degree, this whole idea of discerning the will of God. In Romans chapter 15, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 15, where we're going to take a look very clearly at discerning the will of God. We're going to pick this particular chapter up at verse 22 and look at this section through the end of the the chapter. And in verse 22, it begins this way. For this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions... And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles had shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in the joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul wrote the major part of this letter to the Roman church to establish himself with them doctrinally, and now in this epilogue, he establishes himself with them personally. He indicates his heart's desire to minister to them and to have fellowship with them ultimately as it works out for him to go to Rome on his way. Ultimately, his his desire was to go to Spain. Here he makes some additional comments about ministry, especially his plans and hopes for future work in the Lord's service. And these personal expressions reveal some truths that are uh, more implicit rather than explicit, and they're more general rather than specific. But I think as we read these, we'll begin to see and understand that there is some application, obviously, for every one of us who read this letter. Now, underlying the surface of this very, very personal passage is the basic principle that was the foundation of Paul's life. 
And in fact, if you look at this principle, it guided every one of his thoughts, every one of his actions, everything that he said, everything he wrote, everything that he did. And he mentions it to us in verse 32. And it kind of stood out when I was going through and studying. And, and oftentimes when I go through, there are certain things that will stand out and I'll just underline it or mark it or highlight it or, or red pencil it or whatever it is. And, and if you know, you go through it, it's kind of like, it's like a lot of stuff. But um, the bottom line is this, is he says that, you know, basically what he's talking about is everything he did, he did by the will of God. He lived his life by the will of God. And that's the focus of our passage and what it means for a believer to live our life by the will of God. Now, it's important that we understand God's will in many ways is not a mystery. It's not shrouded in darkness to somehow keep us all guessing, to somehow keep us all off balance. You know, there are many times we talk to one another and we talk about the will of God and we make it sound like it's something so mystical and mysterious that we're really never really sure what is the will of God. Well, you know what? The will of God is clearly revealed in many cases in His Word. We don't have to guess. It doesn't have to be subjective at all. It's very objective. It's a standard. It's laid out. And it's clearly told to us. Paul, for example, understood that from the time that he had come to faith in Christ, and now those of you who have been with us throughout the series, we realize that there was a point in Paul's life where he was in opposition to the things of God. He hated Jesus and everything that Jesus stood for, that on his road to Damascus, where he was going to persecute those who had come to faith in Christ and were openly promoting that Jesus Christ was indeed Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world, and all who came to faith in him would be right with God. He wanted to stop that message. But God intervened in his life and interceded in his life. And on the road to Damascus, we're told that he came into a personal living relationship with Christ through faith. He recognized he was a sinner indeed as God had claimed that he was. And he recognized what he was doing before God was wrong. And he trusted and responded to the message that was given to him that Jesus was indeed the Christ. He responded by faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And he came to a personal relationship with Christ. And he realized from that moment on, he enslaved himself. We read in Romans chapter 1, he became a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He voluntarily enslaved himself to Christ. And the logical argument that he gives to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 is that, hey, I've been bought with a price and so have you. Jesus died for me. And because he died for me and I find forgiveness in him and there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1. We see that because of that, we owe him everything. What could we ever give back to him that would ever in any way come close to what he's done for us? How could we repay someone who has given us eternal life? How can we pay someone who has given us forgiveness? How can we repay someone who therefore there is now no condemnation or we will never be judged by God for sin throughout eternity? What could we ever do in return for him? Paul said the logical conclusion, his reasonable service was that I just enslaved myself to Christ. Whatever he tells me to do, wherever he tells me to go, whatever gifts he's given me to serve him, I am going to use them to the glory of God. And that's what he's done. And that's what we see as we go through here. Because he realized, as even Jesus laid out as an example, he says in John 5.30, Jesus said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That even Jesus, the example that he gives us is that I did not come to this earth to do my will, but I came to do the will of the Father. And the example for us is, I no longer live to do my will for those who have come to faith in Christ as Paul had. We should no longer live to do our will or our desires. We should live now to do the will of God and to please Him and to glorify Him in everything that we do. 
As I mentioned, God's will is often clearly revealed in the Bible. If you've got yours open, turn to Ephesians, a couple books forward, and take a look at some a clear passage. And I want to make a point as we go through this so that it will help all of us understand the clarity in which God reveals His will. We don't have to hold the page up to the light and try to figure out whether this is applicable to us or not. For all who have come to faith in Christ, the will of God is very distinctly revealed throughout His Word. For example, in Ephesians 4.17, he starts by giving a contrast of what our lives were like prior to faith in Christ, what the lives are like of those in the world who have not come to a personal relationship with Christ, and he contrasts a before and after picture. He says, I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, you walk no longer. And the word walk means stop living your life. It means the direction that you're going in your life. That you walk or you live no longer, just as those who don't believe also live in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's within them. See, it's because of the hardness of their heart. See, so oftentimes God clearly reveals when a person is confronted with the gospel... It's only the hardness of our heart. I think back in the days when someone shared with me, Chuck, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you understand that you're a sinner? Do you understand the message that I'm sharing with you? Do you understand the message of God? And I could say to them in certainty, I understand what you're saying, but it's not for me, I'm not interested, good for you, I'm glad it's working for you, but for me, I'm not interested, have a nice day, have a nice life, and that's the way we left it. And I look back on that and I begin to realize very clearly what God says, the only thing that held me back from coming to faith in Christ was my own stubborn heart. You know, I told someone recently as we were discussing who said, you know what, I believe in my head, but I don't believe in my heart. So, you know, the, different, the, the distance from your head to your heart is the distance from heaven to hell. Isn't that the truth? Simply is. You can know things in your head, but not accommodate them in your heart. And the difference is the difference of where you'll spend eternity. The difference is of whether you'll be judged for sin or won't be judged for sin. And it's important that we understand that and realize that. He goes on and says they become callous in verse 19. They've given themselves over to sensuality, practice of uh, every kind of impurity with greediness. And he says, but you didn't learn Christ this way. Saying there's a contrast between before you came to Christ and how you should live after you've come to Christ. You didn't learn Christ this way, and if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him and trust in him and trust in his truth in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of living, you lay it aside. You put old things behind and all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. He goes on and he talks about the contrast in verse 25. Therefore, you used to lie, now tell the truth. It says you used to get angry and have no self-control, now have anger but only anger toward unrighteousness and sin and have the fruit of the Spirit which is also self-control. It says you used to steal... Lie, cheat, and steal. That includes cheating on your expense accounts. That includes anything else that you can put in that category that, you know, whatever you want to try to manipulate and come up with. Lie, cheat, and steal. And he says, you used to do that. He says, now work hard. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. You used to cuss and swear like a sailor, a construction worker. Now you're still a construction worker. Now you're going to talk like one that you've never heard talk like one before. 
you're going to have a whole new language. And you're going to speak in a way that's pleasing to God. And you're going to build people up and not tear people down. He goes on and says, you know what? And you're not going to be bitter anymore, holding grudges. But you're going to forgive one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, he goes all through that. It used to be immoral, but now you will be dedicated to purity. You used to tell dirty jokes. Now you'll tell that which is fitting and right for the moment. You know, he goes on and he contrasts the two. He said, you used to live in darkness, now you live in light. And in verse 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 5, he summarizes what he's trying to say by saying this. Therefore, because of everything I just said, be careful how you live your life. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Not as those who don't know any different, but those who distinctly know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. This is God's will. It says, make the most of your time. What's he talking about? We are to redeem the time wisely because we don't know how much time we have. Sin is a waste of time. It is a precious commodity time that God gives us to accomplish certain things for his glory. And when we sin, we waste that valuable resource. The prodigal son comes to mind quickly. The person who went and slopped with the pigs and lived his life in a way that was displeasing to God. And one day he woke up and he came to his senses and said, man, I've wasted a whole bunch of time. I need to get busy and do what's right by God. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What the will of the Lord is, that's God's will. And that's just one section. In many other sections, we learn His will is that we're to be generous, to give of ourselves. In fact, in that section, it says we're to work and to to accomplish or achieve things so that we can give to those who can't do that, to be generous. We're to be not conformed to this world, but transformed by a renewed mind so that we what? We will know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to suffer at times in our life. That there are times when we will suffer for doing what is right. Many of us suffer for doing what is wrong. But God says, you know, there are times when Christians will suffer for doing what is right. And guess what? And that is the will of God. We're to submit to authority. We learned that in Romans chapter 13. Because all authority is established by God. And it's a ministering agent for good. Created by God to restrain evil in the world. We're to pray at all times. We're to praise God and give thanks. Now in Romans chapter 15, to go back there, what Paul does is he lists six characteristics that are true of the believer who lives life according to the will of God. Six characteristics of a believer who lives his life or her life by the will of God. The first thing is this. Romans 15, look at verse 22. For this reason I've often been hindered from coming to you He says, and as we go through and look at it, what was the reason that he gave? The reason in simple terms is because he recognized the providence of God. He recognized the providence of God. In simple terms, what that means is this. That Paul recognized, in simple terms, that God is in control of all things. He recognized that God is the ultimate authority over all mankind. And his recognition of this truth is found in this this verse where he says, For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. 
The question you have to ask is, what was the reason? Well, the reason had already preceded before we get to this point. And the reason was, is that God had called him to go into the world and tell people about Jesus. And he was to go into areas that nobody had gone before. He was to go into areas where the gospel had never been heard. He was to go into areas where he was to tell people about Jesus, and that was God's will for him. It's important as we look at this that we pick out the key words that are there, and the word hindered is critical to our understanding of the thought that's being conveyed. Words are important to convey meaning. And if we haven't learned anything over the last 33 days, it's the importance of words. What does the word shall mean? What does the word may mean? What's the difference between you shall do something or you may do something or you will do something? It's critical because they convey intent. And the intent is if you shall do something, maybe you shall, maybe you shouldn't. If you will do something, if you may do something, I mean, it's, it's huge. And so as we look at words, God has chosen to convey his thoughts. He, can, he conveys his thought by using the word hindered. The word hindered means very simply this. It's a word that means to cut into or cut out. It was a term that was used to dig a trench across a road to prevent an army from progressing to its destination. What they would do is they would build, they would build deep holes or dig deep holes on the roads that were available so armies would have to go around them or they'd have to slow them down to the point where they'd have to fill the holes back up in order to proceed with their army toward their destination or their battleground. The word here that God uses is that, and Paul recognized, is that God dug deep holes so that Paul could not go any further in the direction that he was heading, but he would have to go in a different direction, and he would have to continually follow the will of God in his life. Let me define this for you in a, in a, in a way that helps us to understand it. The imperfect tense of this verb indicates continuation. It means this. It's passive, indicating that the cause was from the outside. It's important that we realize that. Because of God's plan and control, Paul was providentially and continually prevented from coming to the church of Rome. Do you understand that? It was from the outside, not from his own desires. He's already indicated his desire was what? Man, I've had a desire for a long time to come to Rome. It's a place where I've always wanted to come on my way to Spain. My ultimate destination is I want to get to Spain. But God controlled the direction that Paul was going. Now, we read through the Bible, there are a lot of, there are a lot of occasions where God miraculously intervenes in human history. We read in the book of Exodus, for example, that God opened or parted the Red Sea so that the, the nation of Israel could go on dry land to the other side and escape the marching armies of Pharaoh, and that God in his providence covered up the army of Egypt as they pursued Israel into the Red Sea. We see that God, God does that. But we also realize that many times in life, you know, God doesn't use miraculous means to convey his will to us. It's not always that evidence of, you know, the cloud by day and the fiery fire by night. It's not that obvious at times. But the, the bottom line of providence is this. God's sovereign control of everything exercised not through the miraculous, but through ordering all the complex natural events so that they accomplish his will. Do you follow that? That God is in control. If we're to live by the will of God, we need to put to rest this truth once and for all. God is in control of all things. It is amazing to me how many believers I talk to that are so troubled by the events that go on in the world around us. 
God is in control of all things. Period. Exclamation point. And we're going to talk what that means to us individually. But all we've got to do is go through Scripture and see how true that is. And we know that this is true. That God works together. And He brings about all things work together because of God's sovereignty. And work together for good according to God's purposes. Why? For those who are called according to God's purposes, all things work together for good. See, God's in control of all things. If you were with us through our study of the book of Daniel, you would have seen the impeccable evidence that God lays out in His Word as He tells us in advance what nations would be coming up in the future and who would be leading them. We saw the Babylonian Empire that was taken over by the Medes and the Persians, that was taken over by the Assyrians, that was taken over by the Romans. And all of that was laid out clearly in the Word of God hundreds, if not thousand years, before any of this ever took place. And he's also told us in the future of our time, all of that is history to us, but in the future there's a day coming where the Roman Empire will be revised once again, or resurrected, so to speak. It has not been dead. It has merely been distributed throughout the world, and there's a day coming when that coalition of those ten nations will take and get together again. And we see the Word of God clearly tells us that. From, from, from Genesis, the book of beginnings, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, we see the beginning and we see the end. We see everything that we need to know. God is in control of all things. And all things are working towards His purposes and His end. We can all relax a little bit. God's got it under control. Probably the best example in the Old Testament is clearly found in the story of Joseph. I love the stories. It has to do with the providence and sovereignty of God. Because as you read through this, you go, what, what, what was, why would God allow somebody to be thrown into prison? Why would God allow somebody to be thrown into prison who didn't do anything wrong? Why did God do that? And as we see and the events unfold before us, it's such a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. As here's Joseph in prison and he makes friends with people while he's in prison. And one of those people that were in prison with him later tells me, hey, I knew a guy in prison. Who could tell me things that were going to happen? And so they called him up and brought him. And anyway, the culmination of all of it is this. And this is what Joseph says to his repentant brothers who had sold him into slavery. And we're wondering, as we all wonder, why, God, do you allow certain things to happen the way you allow them to happen? Here's what he said. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's why. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Beautiful. Genesis 50, chapter 20. King Xerxes, the same way, appointed Esther as queen. Why? In the providence of God, that she would protect the nation of Israel from being annihilated by those who were her enemy. And you've been appointed for what? For just such a time as this. Is that great? Appointed for such a time as this. There's great comfort in all of that. We can take comfort. Even as we see and hear what's going on around us in our nation, we can take comfort that when God's will is finally clearly revealed, that we know that God's hand's in it. Regardless of what happens, regardless who ascends to the presidency, regardless of what's going on, because God, in His sovereignty, is going to bring about His purposes. 
Read Acts chapter 17. It's, it's a wonderful passage on the sovereignty of God as it's appointed by God for certain nations to rise, for certain leaders to rise, and there's no boundary that they have that hasn't been given boundaries and parameters by God. And it's a wonderful thing to look at and say, hey, I guess God, you pretty much got things under control. Can there be any other doubt in our minds? That God is in control of all things? Let me ask you just a personal question and just something that you have to think about a little bit, and that's this. What exactly is too big for God? What exactly would God be limited by? Let me see if I understand this right. He's all shook up about a presidential election in the United States. But he can hold the universe in place. I don't know, it seems tougher to me to hold the universe in place than to elect a president. Although you wouldn't know it by how we're going about it. (laughs) But, I mean, what's tougher? Wasn't it Jesus who said, what's tougher to do? To tell this man that his sins are forgiven? Or to have a man who had never walked to stand up and walk? Huh? Well, from a human perspective, it's obvious. Well, it's tougher to make someone walk that's never walked than to say with words, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what. So that you can believe my word that I can forgive sin, stand up and walk. And he did just that. What's harder to do is say your sins are forgiven or to take a dead person and raise them up to life again? Lazarus, come forth. What's harder to do? To say to you and I who have come to faith in Christ, Chuck, you know what? You are forgiven. You're a child of mine now because you've believed in my name. You have an inheritance that's waiting for you that has taken place the moment you've come to faith and will be realized at a later date in the future. When you're absent from the body, Chuck, one day you'll be present in my sight. What's harder to do, say you're forgiven, or or, or to be able to deliver on your promises? See, God delivers on his, on his promises because of his providence and because of his sovereignty. God is in control of all things. So whatever troubles that you may have in this world, we can trust the fact that God is in control of all things. Now, as we look at this, it would lead us to the next question, and that's this. Well, if God's in control of everything, what do we have to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Otherwise, you get out early. And we can't have that happening now, can we? (laughs) Notice what he says. Verse 23 and 24, God's in control, but we respond, what? By planning. Verse 23, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've been, I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing to be helped in my way there by you, when I first enjoyed your company for a while. Notice what he says. He says, well, God's in control of all things, but also... We're to plan certain things as well. God's in control, but we make plans. And that's the way that it works. Paul had planned for many years to go to Spain through Rome. But it never worked out because of God's providence. God kept him from doing that. But he continued to plan to do that at some point in his life. And he's saying, well, it seems to me like all those other doors are closing. I've done what I was supposed to do. Now the door for me is open to go to Spain through Rome. And that's what I'm planning to do. You know, contrary to to what one may think at first thought... It is sensible for God's people to plan in lieu and in light of God's sovereignty and providence. We can plan while God is providential. And we need to do that. In fact, Jesus asked rhetorically, he was speaking of discipleship, but it applies here in Luke 14. He says, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down, take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him, or with 20,000 men? What he's saying is, if God's leading you into battle, you still need to sit down and plan accordingly. Do you need 10,000 troops? Do you need 20,000 troops? Do you need so many dollars, or do you need X times so many dollars? The bottom line is, God's in control, but man also plans. You know, what's interesting is, talking about the whole idea of planning and moving forward, we learn in Acts 16, it says that during the second, uh, second missionary journey, after ministering in Galatia, Paul and Silas had planned to travel, and here's what it says, into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them, and passing by Myasia, they came to Troas, where Paul had a vision of a man calling them to Macedonia, after which they sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel to them, that it was the will of God for them not to go one direction, but to go another direction. And what we need to be understanding is this. God leads those who are moving and walking and following behind Him. How simple is that? You can't sit and say, I'm going to follow the Lord's leading in my life. If he's out so far ahead of you, you can't see him. If you're walking in obedience with him and he turns you one way or the other, you can follow because you clearly see him. Makes sense, right? Then how can many of us sit back and say, I want to follow God's leading in my life, but we're not moving towards him and following him? Instead, we're not redeeming the time wisely because we're in rebellion against Him. He's going this way, and we're going this way. And this way, the Bible says, is sin. Don't live your life as unwise people who don't know the difference between right or wrong. Stop wasting time not following the Lord and following your own will. Turn around, repent, and follow the will of God. That's what it means to live by the will of God. Follow Him and His leading in your life. We see in the book of James, which we just finished not long ago. In fact, turn to me, turn with it uh, for a second in James chapter four. James four clearly shows us the uh, the harmony between the sovereignty of God and the planning of man, the the the, the providence of God and, and man's planning. Notice in James four, verse thirteen. We read, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. You notice that? Isn't that just a wonderful picture of the harmony of God's providence and man's planning? Yeah, you know what? We don't know what tomorrow holds. I'll give you another example. You know, talk about God's providence. You know, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. The providence of God knows the day that you and I are going to die. It is appointed by God. Now, in light of the providence of God that says we're all going to die, the Bible also teaches man that we should plan accordingly. Meaning what? We better plan on that day becoming a reality. And if you don't think it will, just look around. I have not met anybody yet who has lived a physical life on this earth 
from an eternal standpoint. Never met anybody 5,000 years old, 6,000 years old, 2,000 years old, 1,500 years old. I've met people who act like they're 1,500 years old. I haven't met anybody that is. We very rarely see people that are, you know, 90, very rarely in our circle of, of friends or family or influence, uh, 90 or 100 or 110. You know, we read about somebody who makes it to 120. But you know what? They're exceptions, not the rule. And the rule is it's appointed by God for man to die once, then judgment. And as a result, we need to be planning for that day. We talk about people that go into hospitals and somebody knows that they're going to die, and they talk about making peace with your maker. Hey, you know what? It's nice to have an opportunity where you're laying there knowing inevitably you're going to die. But even those who I've gone to see who knew they were going to die because of the stubbornness of their heart and their hard-heartedness were not in a position where they want to make peace with God. They blame God for everything, including their faith. But you see, it wasn't God's fault that man died. It was God's graciousness and His blessing that He would allow man to die because if man would have continued to live physically in eternity, we would have been separated from God forever. It was in God's gracious, loving kindness that He did not allow Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life. He banished them from the garden so that they would not live in a state eternally separated from God. The wages of sin is death. It's a consequence of sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you want to plan for the day you're going to die, then the Bible says today is the day of the Lord and you need to ask God to forgive you today. And you need to recognize what He says is true, that you're guilty. And you need to also respond by faith to the finished work of Christ, that Christ died on the cross for you. And He rose again, demonstrating that He's trustworthy. And you need to believe Him in your heart, not just in your head. Because it's in the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness before God. And it's with his mouth he confesses, resulting unto salvation. Today is a day of the Lord. And if God's speaking to you, don't turn your back on him. Because you don't know whether you'll have another opportunity. And it won't be God's fault when you stand before the great white throne judgment. As you get down on your knees and you recognize him as Lord. And the last thing that you do before you're separated from him for all of eternity. In a place the Bible calls the lake of fire that we refer to as hell. God is a wonderful God, a loving God, patient, loving kind, in loving, loving kindness, long-suffering, and He's given all an opportunity to hear the Word of God so that we can respond to the grace of God. We need to realize that, and that's how we plan. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 16:9, "The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps." The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Many are the plans of a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord, it shall stand. Don't miss the point. There's harmony between the providence of God and the planning of man. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this. He said, for those who worry about being provided for, He said, all you need to do is look up at the birds of the sky and you will see that our Heavenly Father provides for them. How much more so will He provide for us who He sent Jesus Christ to die in our place on the cross? How much value, of higher value and esteem do we have who are created in the image and likeness of God Himself? The Bible says, look up at the birds so that we see the providence of God and the caring of God. But I want to tell you another thing that I realize when I look up at birds and how God provides for them, I have never yet seen a worm jump into a bird's nest. Get with me. <laughs> Have you? No. You know, it's amazing. I see people around there going, you know, well, the Lord will provide. They're unemployed. You know, supposedly looking, the key is looking for work. 
They're not, they're not working, they're not looking, they're sitting. Sitting, waiting for work. And in my experiences, I don't know if it's just me and there's not great demand for someone like me, but in the times where I was in between work looking for work, I was like out actively pursuing opportunities. I thought, you know, after I waited for a little while and no one came rushing and knocking at my door or calling, that maybe it was time for me to get out and start to do something. See, the providence of God says that God's in control of all things. The harmony of man's planning says, you know what, man, we have a responsibility to be planning. Now, what's interesting to me is this. What is the Apostle Paul planning to do in in Romans 15? Listen to me. Paul was planning to go to Spain through Rome. Listen. To tell people about Jesus. That's what he was planning to do. Why was he going to Spain? Why did he want to go to Rome? They were huge places of commerce. It was the seat of the world government at that time. Everything revolved around Rome. Why did he want to go there? Because that was where he could have the greatest influence on the greatest number of people. One of the reasons that I put up with what I put up with at times ministering to professional athletes is because in our culture, the sphere of influence that they have is incredible. When a guy like Kurt Warner stands up after a Super Bowl and says, I want to give all glory and praise to my Savior, Jesus Christ, he reached 120 million people in one statement that the rest of us may... I mean, there's no way possible... The only influence that we can have is when we influence people that have influence, then ultimately we are a partner in that ministry, and our influence of influencing people that have influence on a culture is how God uses all of us together to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, who has called us from darkness into light. What are we supposed to be doing? Proclaiming his name before the world. See, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the dynamite of God, the power of God. It's the only thing that can provide eternal life for those who believe, the Bible says. He says to the Jews first, also to Greek, it's dynamite. We're to be planning, actively planning. I like what was shared this morning. The guy who has four Jesus videos in his golf bag, it's not a coincidence that they're there. There was a plan that I want to reach the guys that I'm golfing with for Jesus. I don't want them to go to hell. I want them to come to faith in Christ. I want them to enjoy the blessings and the forgiveness that comes in a relationship with Christ. I am planning to reach the world that God has put in my path for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are your plans? I I'm so convicted. I sit there going, you know, here's my plan. My plans are a lot like James 4 plans. You know, we need to get so much work to take care of our overhead. We need to get so much more work to take care of, you know, any kind of profit we're going to make. We need to get, you know, this, that, and the other thing. You know, we're planning on buying a new car. We're planning on going to another house. We're planning on maybe getting a better job. We're planning on getting a raise. We're planning on putting so much money in our retirement fund. We make all these plans for everything in life, but planning on reaching people for Jesus. Man, we're pretty dense sometimes. And it's very convicting. That's why it's so quiet here. Because I want to ask you what I ask myself. When was the last time I made plans to reach someone for Jesus? Strategy. See, God, you know, man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And we always need to be sensitive to that. You know, we may invite people over for, for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them, but if we're following the will of God and we're discerning His will, maybe that's not the right time. 
And we need to be sensitive to that. And you throw out a little statement or you throw out a little conversation. If the door closes, they don't want to go there, then you be sensitive, you develop the relationship, you develop the friendship, but you put it on a back burner because you continue to pray in the meantime to reach them with the gospel. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want them to hear the gospel. It just means God wants us to be sensitive to the leading of God as we're sharing the gospel with people. You know, I talked to people, and Linda talked to a gal this past week that said, you know, she invited her to come to church, and, and she said, you know, I'm not really. She goes, are you one of those Bible thumpers? And so, you know, Linda's having a heart attack thinking of how many times I'll stand up here going, and, and another thing. <laughs> and so, you know, in good conscience, she said, I'm not. <laughs> but, but, you know, what, what was the point? You know, the point is that she goes, you know, we got these neighbors and they, they, they just hammer on us all the time. They just hammer on us all the time. And in a lot of ways, you know, I wish more of us were hammering on people all the time than never saying anything. But I also realize hammering people on the, all, the, uh, all the time is probably sometimes even worse than not saying anything at all. Where do we want to be? We want to be in God's will. We want to share with people that God opens their heart and the door for us to share with. We want to share in God's timing and in God's providence. But we need to be planning in the to reach people for Jesus. Because let me tell you something about the house, about the car, about the money, about the iris, about all this other stuff, getting married, having children, you know, getting your children out of the house, uh, you know, all the things we plan, you know, whatever. You know what? In, a, in the scope of eternity, they don't mean anything. Isn't it about time that our plans had some spiritual significance? Isn't it about our time our plans had some eternal consequences? See, those living by the will of God make such plans. Number three, he talks about a priority. And the priority is that we need to remember in verses 25 through 28, he says the priority is very simple. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem uh, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. They're indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also, excuse me, in material things. Therefore, when I finish this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Can I just say something very practical here? And hopefully it'll make a lot of sense to you, but that's this. Our priorities, very simply, are this. Not my will, God, be done, but yours. And that's what stands out as I read this, because what is Paul's desire? It's to go to Spain through Rome. That's his burden, that's his heart, to go to Spain through Rome. He wanted to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who were in Spain. He wanted to have fellowship with those who were in Rome. But he knew that there was already a church established there. The gospel had already been preached there. He didn't have a desire to go to Rome to preach the gospel, or as he said, to build upon another man's work. He wanted to go to Spain where the gospel hadn't been heard. That was his desire. But I want you to notice something. But God's will for him was to go a thousand miles in the other direction to Jerusalem to finish what had been started, and that is to raise money to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. It was a critical and key time in the history of the church where the Jews and the Gentiles did not trust one another. The Gentile churches outside of Corinth, and that was what we see happening here, and that's the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. The Gentile church outside of Corinth and in Corinth took up a collection to help the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem because they heard about their plight. They didn't have any more than the Jews in Jerusalem had. 
but they were willingly and voluntarily giving from what God had blessed them with for the purpose of ministering in a practical way a gift to those in Jerusalem. It was a peace offering. It was saying, you know what, we're indebted to you because, because through Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Jews, and he came into this world, it was through the Jews that Christ came into the world, and because of that, we have an indebtedness to our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, that it was through them that came Messiah, and we had an opportunity by, as it turns out, their rejection of him, that we then had chance to put our faith and trust in, in Christ. But he's saying that, you know, the harmony that took place of saying, we're here for you. And, and, and what I'm trying to get across is simply this. Oftentimes in life, God's will will supersede our will or our desires. We've got to be sensitive to that. He wanted to go to Spain through Rome, but God says, i got a task for you to complete, and that is you need to go to Jerusalem first, finish that work, and then I will lead you from there. God's will is revealed oftentimes in our own personal lives. Not the clarity of the word that we have for all believers, but individually, the ministry that God has given each one of us through the gifts that he has given to us, oftentimes God's will is revealed to us one step at a time. One step, trust and obey. One step of trusting God and obedience, and God continues to reveal his will to us. Beautiful thing in Abraham. But Lord, where am I going? Don't worry about it. You follow me. You take one step forward, and I'll be right in front of you. Take another step forward, I'll be right in front of you. And I will lead you where I want you to go. And when you are there, you will know it. Isn't that great? Our old southern preacher used to tell us in uh, Rams chapels, used to say this, you can't be faithful where you ain't, until you are faithful where you are. I talk to so many Christians who are all talking about, you know what, well, here's what I plan on doing for God tomorrow. This is what I'm planning on doing for Him tomorrow. But I want to ask you a question. Is not today, tomorrow, yesterday? I know that's a little much for some of you. You've been sitting a long time. But you got the point? Is not today... Tomorrow, yesterday. Well, what are you doing any different today than you did yesterday as far as serving the Lord? Our priorities are there, and we should recognize and understand that. The fourth thing of these six characteristics of a person who lives their life by the will of God is found in verse 29 where we read, And I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. The person living their life by the will of God relate all prosperity to God. And what I mean by that is this. Paul said, I know, with absolute assurance and certainty. And the reason that he knew that whatever he was going to do, he would find the blessing of God, is because he lived continually in obedience to the Lord. His life was always blessed. You ready for that? Because he lived every day in continual obedience to the Lord, his life was always blessed. It doesn't mean he didn't go through difficult circumstances because we certainly know that his obedience to the Lord, there were times where he was in prison, there were times where he was beaten and left for dead, there were times that, you know, he was scourged, there was times that, you know, he was shipwrecked, there was times that, you know, it doesn't mean the circumstances of life are in the, wow, everything's rosy category. But even in the midst of all of those things, he was blessed by God. Why? Because he saw God's hand in everything. Because he saw God's sovereignty in everything. If he was beaten, it was because God allowed it. If he was shipwrecked, it was because it was part of the plan of God. If it was thrown in prison, and that's why when he was in prison in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were chained to prisoners, and they were praising God even though they were illegally thrown in prison. 
because they knew it was God's plan for them to reach people in prison, they never would have reached out on the streets with the love of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could have never shared the gospel with the guy he was chained to unless he had been put in prison to do so. Wherever we are in life, we are there strategically, whether we see it or not, we are there strategically for the purpose of proclaiming him, Jesus, who has called us from darkness into light. How are you doing in the task at hand? It's amazing to me how many people I run into that complain about, I, want, I, I need to find another job because there's no Christians at my company. Cha-ching, payday! <laughs> I don't like playing on this sports team because there's no Christians on it. Woohoo! That's great! I talk to guys all the time that get to feel sorry for me, the pity poor me's. I feel people all the time. It's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know what, it's like, what, what's wrong? Oh, it's so hard. It's so, I mean, uh, well, but don't you see God's got you here for a reason? Because he trusts you with the gospel to share to them. Personally, I don't see it. I probably would have came up with somebody else under the why me circumstances that I'm listening to, but God is smarter than me, and he trusts you. Prove him right. Prove him right. We need to retain a clear purpose. What's the purpose? I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit. Purpose is simple. The purpose is we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God. Is He your Lord? Do you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? If you do, you'll live by the will of God. And the last thing is this. We need to remain fervent in prayer. Fervent in prayer. Notice what he says to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. This is probably the cardinal mark of a person who is walking in the will of God, as a person who is committed to prayer. I'm not talking about, you know, the now I lay me down to sleep prayer. I mean, that's good to teach children to start to pray. I'm not talking about that. And we, had, we used to have a friend who was a professional athlete who used to teach his kids at, 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 um, at dinner time. Here's his prayer. Okay. Yub-a-dub-dub. Thanks for the grub. Yay, God. Now... You know, it, you know I, I understand the intent there, but I also, man, I also knew he was a linebacker and he got hit in the head a lot too. So, <laughs> so that, that, you know, that may have been about all we can get out of him. But, but, but the point is, is this. The word strive together is a word that is translated from the Greek that means to agonize over. To agonize over. He says, strive together in prayer to God for me. Agonize over prayer. When was the last time you agonized over prayer? I immediately pictured Jesus in the garden as he prayed before the Father, and his sweat turned to beads of blood. He agonized over that which was about to take place, and he understood, and he said, Lord, you know, if it's your will, allow this cup to pass from me, but if it's not, I'm here to do your will. He agonized over it. When was the last time that you agonized over someone to share the gospel with? 
When was the last time you agonized over, Lord, please open the door of the heart of this person that I care for at work or in my family, in my neighborhood, on my team, at school, that I would have the opportunity to share with them the greatest thing they can ever hear, the greatest thing that I heard, that God loves me and he can forgive everything that I've ever done in my life, past, present, and future, and that I will never stand accountable for him if I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. When was the last time you agonized over that? He says, agonize over this with me. I think of Hezekiah who said, Lord, give me more time on earth. Give me 15 more years. I think of Jacob who wrestled with the angel of the Lord and said, I am not letting you go and I'm going to fight with you all night until you bless me. The angel of the Lord tinked his hip and, and, and tweaked him and he still hung on. And the rest of his life, he limped the rest of his life and it was a reminder, the battle scar of what it meant to agonize and ask for God's blessing. I don't know about you, but I get distracted so easily. I go for a run, and it's a time where I like to pray, and it's a time that I like to focus my attention on the Lord, and it's a time because it also takes my attention away from the pain. Uh, but, but it's like, and, and, I, and I struggle with, and I, and I think of all, you know, and I think of the message, and I think of the outline, and I pray to God, God, if there's something else you want me to say, if there's another passage you want me to tie into it, and the Spirit of God begins to bring back to my memory many things of Scripture that uh, fit and tie into it. And yet at the same time, it's not long before I'm wandering, I'm distracted by other things. It's like I want to focus on the Lord. And even our time when we get together as guys to pray, there are times where I start to wander. There's times I look at my watch. It's like, wow, that guy just set a record of our time together. You know, it's like, what's wrong with me? Well, I know what's wrong with me. The same thing that's wrong with all of us. The same thing that's wrong with the Apostle Paul who said, you know what, the battle, there's a wage, there, there's a war that's waging within me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to do what's right before God, and yet I'm being pulled away in another direction, and there's a battle that's going on. If you don't think there's a spiritual battle going on, you haven't read the Bible. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. This presidential election is not about people. It is not about people. It is about principalities and darkness and righteousness and that someone would walk humbly with God, that someone would love justice and love mercy, that someone would be used by God to turn our nation back to God and the things on which this nation had been founded. This isn't about individual people. This is a spiritual battle. And that's why we need to agonize. And that's hopefully why we continue to agonize and continue to pray. What frightens me and saddens me is that there are those who prayed three weeks ago that haven't prayed since. Are you still praying? The answer is not clear yet. Get on your knees and pray to God that He would put someone to office who would walk humbly with Him, who would love justice and love mercy and walk humbly with His God. A person who can be used by God to turn this nation back to God. When was the last time you agonized over anything like that? Paul says, I want you to agonize over this with me. I want you to get specific the specific prayer that he says is, so that, look at he says, I want, I need, Lord, deliver me from those who are disobedient. God, protect me. Lord, if I'm going to take a stand in my office, protect me from a boss who may be hostile to the things of God. If I'm going to take a stand on my team, and in my school, in my neighborhood, in my community, protect me from those who are hostile to the things of God. Put a hedge around me. Protect me that I will continue to be bold, even though I may face consequences that, that, that I may not even foresee. But please, God, protect me. Keep us safe. Deliver me from those disobedient, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. That it have success in verse 31. 
that it would be acceptable. God, I pray for success. I want to go share the gospel this week with so-and-so. Open their heart to listen. I pray for success, that your words will be heard by that person. I know I have no control over how they respond, and it's not my job whether they accept Christ or reject Christ, but my responsibility is to be a witness for you in the world. Please grant me success. I think of immediately, right at this moment, the Spirit of God reminds me of, of, of Nehemiah where he prayed, God, grant me success in the eyes of the king that I may go and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Turn the heart of the king in my direction. God, grant us success. Grant us success as we pray that you put into into the the position of presidency. God, grant us success that, that this person will be a man of God, a righteous leader, one who loves God, mercy and justice. That our that our prayers would be successful. There's nothing wrong with that. Notice that's exactly what Paul preached. God, give me success in my ministry on your behalf. And give me satisfaction so that I will come to you and enjoy what? By the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Man, there is nothing better than living life by the will of God because in God's will we find joy and satisfaction. If there is no joy in your life, if there is no satisfaction in your life, if your life is filled with unrest, lack of peace, I will be willing to, to tell you, to, even if it means offending you, that you are not walking or living by the will of God. Because when we live by the will of God, there is joy, there is satisfaction. And there is, as God says right here, notice what he says, now the God of peace be with you all. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you are here and you have not made peace with God, then do not wait, for today is the day of the Lord. And peace with God comes by recognizing that you are guilty, as God says, and that you respond by repenting of your sin and turning to God and believing that Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross that he rose again three days later, demonstrating his power over, over death and also to give life. If you are here and you've not made peace with God, it's appointed for man to die once. Then comes judgment. That's God's providence. But man's planning is that we need a plan for that day. For those of us who have come to faith in God through Christ, we praise him because of that. And now I challenge you to live every day by the will of God. And you will find peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And he wants us to know that peace. And he wants us to have life and to have it abundantly. Father, we just thank you. We just pray that in our own lives, each one of us, first that we've resolved the issue of coming to faith in Christ, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we're absent from this body, we'll be present with the Lord. Your spirit confirms with our spirit that we're children of God to those who believe in his name, that you confirm in our hearts that we will never stand before you in judgment, that there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. God, we just praise you for that truth. And we also ask that you give us the strength and that we'd be obedient to live lives according to your will and not ours, to follow you in your direction in life, knowing that you are in control of all things, to plan accordingly. God, we just thank you that it's man who plans his ways, but it's the Lord who directs our steps. Lord, I just ask also that we be people who plan to reach the people around us that you have put in our path for the purpose of hearing the dynamite of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you that the word clearly conveys your thoughts 
your attentions and your will. And we just praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.